0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, in the interest of punctuality, I'm going to start a minute early so I can make the quick housekeeping announcements and then we can start on time with Rob. So following Rob's presentation will be the last opportunity to purchase books and pick up shirts. I think pick up means zero price. Uh, All the complimentary materials will be available during the reception, but if you want any books, or shirts and so on, they're going to be uh, outside. Uh, Also, the informational flyers on the Independence Hall tour will be available. So you can pick one up at the registration table if you signed up to attend. That'll just give you a sense of of what to expect. And uh, it's now 3.14. You can start early. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. Yeah, well, thank uh, all of you uh, for sticking with us and, um, and, and coming to our final uh, sit-in-this-room session. Uh, we, of course, have great uh, after-dinner remarks from, from David Bowes tonight, um, but this is my final talk, and as you know, I've been sort of marching us through American history. We began with the 18th century, um, then this morning we addressed the 19th century, and um, now I'm going to talk about the post-Civil War Um, period, through the present. And you know, whenever you teach history, you you always have this challenge. What do you uh, talk about? What do you highlight? um, And and what do you just not have time to address? Um, And and so, you know, it's been difficult to sort of select the episodes um, that really stand out as ones that are important for the history um, of liberty and American government. And um, I think when we look at the Second American Republic, um, we, we see a lot of echoes of uh, Chris's talk after dinner last night. Um, when we think about how is it that our government started uh, as this very limited thing? You know, I mean, outside there are wonderful free copies of Cato Constitutions. And you could read through Article One, Section 8. You know, where all these powers are enumerated for Congress. And, you know, it's, it's a full basket of, of appropriate powers that Congress should have, um, but it is nothing close to what government does today. How did that happen? I think war is a big um, part of, of that answer. Um, every time the government had a war, um, people would respond to that crisis. Um, by accepting that the government would have, um, to, to win the war, new resources, new powers. Maybe the people would have fewer freedoms. And, and typically, after the war is done, the government gives back some of those powers and some of those resources, and the people um, regain some of their freedoms, but generally not all. And, and so there's sort of a ratchet effect and it's, it's not just with war. It's with other crises, real or perceived. Um, the war on drugs, the health care crisis, uh, all of these real and perceived crises um, cause people to endow the government with new powers, new resources, oftentimes at the expense of our liberty. And um, some of these crises, sadly, seem never to end. The war on poverty apparently is still being fought, and uh, it's, it's really interesting when you look at how these various crises and wars contribute to the growth of government. There's another thing that I think contributes to the growth of government, um, especially in the 20th century, um, and I think it has something to do with uh, new ideologies, new understandings of what rights are. Um, I think when we all speak in the language of rights, we understand the difference between what a philosopher might call negative rights or liberty rights um, and positive rights or welfare rights. A negative right is a right essentially to be left alone. Um, My right to life and liberty and property means that you are not supposed to kill me or enslave me or coerce me or take my things. Uh, A right to um, affordable housing it's a very different sort of thing. That incurs upon you an obligation um, to provide something for me. Um, and, and so our, the language of rights has changed, especially in the 20th century. And I think that that has led um, to the government taking on new responsibilities. And then also I think um, we could look at some of the, the great triumphs of uh, the, the market economy the amazing, rapid economic development that took place in the 19th century and perhaps excuse the people of the era after the Civil War, of the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era and the 20th century um, that follows of a bit of hubris. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, if you're a, a, a person alive in 1920, let's say, When you were a child, you probably didn't have a telephone. You probably didn't have um, running water. You probably didn't have central heat. You, you, You didn't have an automobile. And yet by 1920, we have all of those things. Radios, elevators, skyscrapers. I mean, this is a brave new world. And perhaps we could forgive the generation that came of age around the turn of the 20th century for, I think, a great deal of hubris. I think they felt as if um, their world was fundamentally different from the world of the American founding. And as a result, they were entitled to discover fundamentally different answers. And the, uh, the hubris, I think, of, of that generation um, caused them to challenge in some fundamental ways the United States. Constitution. They, they challenged it directly, and as we'll discuss, they, they passed a, a bunch of new amendments to the Constitution in the 1920s. Um, they challenged it indirectly um, and, and disregarded it. And, and, and so as a result, um, we see um, people not being happy to live within the parameters of the government that were laid down um, by that Constitution. When we, when we think about the Civil War, I hope that you know, I gave enough attention to it this morning. Um, and I hope that I'm, I made the point that it really is uh, just a, a, a tragedy. I mean, a tragedy for all of America. Um, and I think it's a tragedy not only for white Americans, but in many respects, it's a tragedy for African-Americans. Because while the great accomplishment, the great achievement of the Civil War is that four million Americans are liberated from slavery, there, there wasn't all that much else that was done for them. You know, the, the story that perhaps many of us were raised upon, um, certainly the story that was told to Americans following the Civil War, is essentially that, that Lincoln, the great emancipator, uh, you know, with the stri- strike of a pen, liberated all of these Americans, and they owed to him their eternal gratitude. We, we know it wasn't that simple, Um, We know that it was far more complicated. And we know that the liberation that came to African Americans in the aftermath of the Civil War was far from complete. In part because the period of Reconstruction that followed the American Civil War was was far from successful. Um, And it was a massive undertaking. When we think about uh, Reconstruction and, and what it was and what it was supposed to be, It was not so much the physical rebuilding of the American South. It wasn't like a Marshall Plan for the American South. Um, It was about the remaking of the American South, the reformation, the renovation of the the Southern society to remake it in the image of the North. And that is a really difficult thing. I mean, it was difficult enough to, to lose as many as 750 thousand lives and, and, and devote tremendous resources and to compromise civil liberties in significant ways for the North to militarily defeat the South. But that's relatively easy. Reconstruction was about changing Southern minds, and, and that was much more difficult. In and, and some ways, we, we think the ultimate uh, way to, to, to sort of lock something into place is to amend the Constitution. And fortunately, we could say that the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, stuck. But the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship rights, and the 15th Amendment, which granted voting rights to African-American men, certainly didn't stick. In part because Reconstruction was something that was very controversial, not only in the South, but also in the North. Um, What should it entail? How much should we ask? of Southern white people. Abraham Lincoln, um, before his assassination, had a fairly modest sense of how the the Union could be reconstructed. And I think when Lincoln spoke of reconstruction, he was thinking about the reassembling of the states within the nation's capital, the return of congressmen and senators um, from these formerly rebellious states. He envisioned things like a small minority of, of white Southerners taking loyalty oaths, um, and that would qualify states um, to get their representatives back. Um, but other people said, no, that is just not sufficient. Think about all that we have lost. Think about all that we have invested in this great national product or project that is the Civil War. Certainly we should expect more from it. And and yet. How can we, within the limits of our power, within the, the rule of law, within, within the, the parameters of what we accept as right as people who care about liberty, what can we do? People like Thaddeus Stevens proposed you know, that former slaves should receive 40 acres and a mule. And that is a brilliant idea, especially if you have a magic machine that generates mules and acres. But if you don't, then you need to take that from people. And, and, and by what process will that unfold? The, uh, the, the long product or project of, of reconstruction is, is one that eventually the North tires of. And uh, by the election of 1876, a number of Southern states have been redeemed, which is uh, the word that was used by Southern whites to mean Southern whites had taken back control of those states. And so those states um, started to turn away African-Americans who had been elected to state legislatures, or to Congress, or in a couple of cases, even to the, to the United States Senate. And, and those black Republicans had been replaced with white Democrats, um, who were intent upon restoring to the South a system of white racial supremacy. There were a few states that were still occupied by the Union Army, and in the election of 1876, it was those states that tended to vote Republican. And essentially, this was one of those elections. We just don't really know who won. It was Rutherford B. Hayes versus Tilden, um, and it all came down, shocker, to Florida, right? (laughs) Who really won Florida? And in uh, maybe the deal of the century, The Republicans said, if you give us the presidency, if you acknowledge that Hayes won Florida, we will give you Democrats um, the end of Reconstruction. We will withdraw Union troops from the South. And after 1877, the South was able to plunge itself wholeheartedly into the process of enacting Jim Crow laws, and, and barriers that impeded the political participation and the economic participation of African-Americans. And the sad tragedy of the Civil War is, is that for many African-Americans, other than their legal freedom, which is of course extremely important in, in, in terms of their material well-being, not a whole lot changed. I mean, there were individuals who stayed on the same plantations where they had once been enslaved But rather than working in the same fields as slaves, they now worked in these fields as sharecroppers. And they could lease this land from their former master um, and and borrow from him money um, to procure seeds and supplies until the harvest came in. And when the harvest came due, they would pay him a share of the harvest. And yet sometimes the harvest wasn't what they expected. Sometimes the harvest was too meager and they, and they didn't meet the minimum that they had to repay. Other times, the, the harvest was too bountiful, and, and, and the crop, as a result, through the law of supply and demand, didn't bring in the cash that was necessary. And oftentimes, sharecroppers found themselves falling further and further in debt to the same person who had once claimed to own them. So, so reconstruction in the South is a period of promise, African-Americans, but that is a promise that is almost certainly not going to be kept for for various individuals. And and the period after Reconstruction is a really traumatic time for the American South, especially for African-Americans who live in the South. And yet, and yet the people of the United States, having mounted this massive campaign, first to defeat the Confederacy and then to reconstruct the Union felt somehow emboldened by their ability to mount that campaign, and somehow were blind to the very incomplete nature of the success that they enjoyed. And they turned their attention after the reconstruction of the American South to the American West, where in 1887 we passed the Dawes Act, which attempts nothing short of the reconstruction of Native America. The idea behind the Dawes Act was that Native Americans should be assimilated into the American population, that tribal distinctions, that the collective ownership of tribal land, um, that that those um, things were holding Indians back, that Indians were endangered, Um, that for the Indians' own good, they needed to learn to become like white people. And, uh, and so, through the provisions of, of the Dawes Act, um, tribal land was essentially claimed by the national government, and divided up among the Indians, who would no longer own the land collectively. Um, and they would receive, um, if it was farming land, 160 acres. And if it was grazing land, 320 acres. So each head of household. Each Indian man would receive acres of land and it would be his to own. And he could occupy it, he could work it, he could sell it. It was his property. And, and, and you know there are a lot of white people um, who are very uh, well-intentioned in, in supporting the Dawes Act. They very much believe that this is for the good of the individual Native Americans. And yet, land that wasn't allocated to Native Americans that had been part of a tribal reservation was declared surplus land. And after a period of time, it could be sold to the the government and divided up um, among white homesteaders. And and so in 1887, Native Americans had about 150 million acres of land in the American West. And yet within 20 years, two-thirds of that was gone. Two-thirds of that was no longer in the hands of Native Americans. So this is uh, well-intentioned, but really quite devastating for the Native Americans um, of the United States. There is also an attempt um, to not only reconstruct Native American society, but to reconstruct the Native Americans themselves. Beginning in 1879 in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, there was established an Indian boarding school, which became a model for dozens of Indian boarding schools throughout the United States, where Indians would be um, taken from their families, brought to this school, and assimilated. This is the same individual, right? The man on the left is the man on the right, right? This is a before and after um, depiction. So the idea is, is that Native Americans um, need to, to lose their, their distinctive culture and become just like the rest of us. The founder of the Carlisle Indian School had as his motto, kill the Indian, save the man. And, and, and so this is, uh, again, well-intentioned, and, and yet dramatically, uh, you know, hubristic, right? I mean, this is truly arrogant policy, but there is this faith that the government can do big things, right? The Civil War, Reconstruction, now the Dawes Act, they demonstrate this. And clearly, there's a a cultural move away from uh, the notion of individual liberty and individual rights um, to a sense of what is best for the collective good. And, and that comes about um, for a number of different reasons. Um, one being our experience with these big national projects. Um, another one being sort of the rise of what, what, what I think a lot of people would call the cult of expertise late in the 19th and early in the 20th century. And it's, it's not a surprise, again, I mean, that these people who had accomplished so much, who had witnessed so much change and development during the course of their lifetimes would begin to believe that a society that is increasingly complicated, that an economy that was increasingly complicated, would need experts in order effectively to manage it. The argument, of course, is that greater complexity, that that calls for greater intervention. Now, those of us who understand markets and understand how markets work realize that more complexity just confounds any ability to to engage in central planning. You'll never know which levers to to pull and which buttons to push in order to generate your desired outcomes. You'll never be able to predict the second and third and fourth order effects and all the unintended consequences of your decisions. And yet there is a strong faith in the early 20th century that expertise is what we need. And As is often the case, there are are a couple of influential books that help to shape Americans' minds in this regard. And probably the most influential of all is uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor's Principles of Scientific Management. And uh, his Principles of Scientific Management was written not for government, but instead for the factory floor. The idea was um, that we could have more efficient industrial organizations. that that certain people have certain talents, and that an effective manager is good at identifying the talents of these certain people and uh, assigning them to appropriate tasks. And on a certain level, that's that's very true, right? That makes good sense. Um, But on another level, it could certainly be taken to an extreme, especially when individuals aren't judged as individuals, but instead are categorized as members of groups. And we have in the early 20th century um, a, a dramatic um, increase in attempts to develop what we would now call scientific racism. There's a man who was a sociologist at the University of Wisconsin named um, Edward Ross, who, for example, um, wrote, about, wrote extensively about different European ethnicities um, and what they're like. You know, the Sicilians, mm-mm, watch out for them. Right, very, very violent. The Northern Italians, they're they're a little bit better, Um, you know. The uh, the Irish, um, you know. I mean, it's it's really, uh, in some ways, uh, outrageously offensive. In other ways, so like blatantly wrong that it's almost hilarious to read his writings and and see how he sliced and diced humanity. Frederick Winslow Taylor engages in some of that as well. He uh, makes the point that there are certain types of people, certain segments of humanity, who are just too dumb to manage their own affairs, and certainly much too dumb to ever dream of managing the production that would occur in a factory. And as he points out, it is only through enforced standardization of methods enforced adoption of the best implements and working conditions, and enforced cooperation that this faster work can be assured. And the duty of enforcing the adoption of these standards and enforcing this cooperation rests with management alone. I can say, without the slightest hesitation, that the science of handling pig iron is so great that the man who is physically able to handle pig iron and is sufficiently phlegmatic and stupid to choose this for his occupation is rarely able to comprehend the science of handling pig iron. Now, I mean, this, is, this, may, be, this may be fine for a private business, right, which, which can succeed or fail um, by the degree to which it adheres to Fred, Frederick Winslow Taylor's principles. But but what's scary about the theory of scientific management is the degree to which it is adopted by other parts of society, including the government. You know, if you went to a public school or many private schools, um, you had a very different experience than people had um, in the nineteenth century. In the nineteenth century, oftentimes it would be a one-room schoolhouse, and oftentimes uh, there would be a teacher who would teach. Um, all different grades in all different subjects. But of course, in the early 20th century, we believe in expertise, we believe in specialization, we believe in segmenting society. And so, and this you know this may well be a good thing pedagogically, I'm not saying that it isn't, um, but we uh, have specialist teachers. Some teachers teach science, others math, others literature, others social studies, no more history sadly, um, others home economics. And and they teach at different grade levels. And all of these people meet in different rooms of this big building. And just like the factory, we signal that it's time to get up and move by ringing a bell. And these schools are, are not only made more efficient through the ringing of bells, but there's this added benefit, right? It's preparing young people for future work in these factories. And, and, and so the theory of scientific management is one that is, uh, is taking hold um, beyond the factory floor and in many aspects of American society. This, this notion of expertise, this notion that there are certain um, ethnic groups that are more fit than others for, for uh, intelligent pursuits, um, that different ethnic groups have different capacities, different capabilities, different innate traits, um, that it really isn't much nurture. It's really largely nature. Um, is, is brought about through the eugenics movement, which within the United States uh, is, is one of the most embarrassing components of, of what we would call um, the progressive era, right? And we, we understand that that term um, progressivism is oftentimes just loaded and dripping with irony. Um, during the progressive era, the eugenics movement really takes hold. Um, and the idea is if we know that there are certain types of of people, certain classes of humanity, certain ethnicities that are better qualified than others uh, that that are more likely to succeed, then shouldn't that have some impact upon the policies for, say, immigration? Shouldn't that have some impact um, on policies regarding who can legally marry? Uh, Connecticut, for example, in 1896, Um, passed a law that prohibited um, marrying um, to anyone who was considered epileptic, imbecile, or feeble-minded, and other states followed suit, and forced sterilization of people who fell into those uh, and other categories, criminals, Um, Oftentimes people who were considered incapable of caring for themselves, um, who were perfectly able-minded, oftentimes this would fall disproportionately upon uh, immigrants and in the American South, especially African Americans. Between 1909 and the 1960s, 60,000 Americans were sterilized to prevent them from reproducing. So, I mean, this is a, a, a ma- and, it, and it's amazing when you think about it. From 1909, okay, I got that, 1909, that was a different time, kind of crazy, to the 1960s. So, I mean, we were still living um, in the shadow of the progressive era. Um, this, this sense that it's not about the individual, that it's really about the collective, right? That it's not about um, individual rights, It's about some utilitarian calculation of of, of the greatest good for the greatest number. That's what should drive government policy. That is very much a part of the Progressive Era. Of course, over the uh, Progressive Era, there are two American presidents who loom large. um, Looming largest of all, I guess, is Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, As a guy who himself needs to lose a little bit of weight, I want to give him a little pro tip. Don't stand next to large globes. (laughs) It's not not particularly slimming. Um, But but of course, it is appropriate for Teddy Roosevelt because as Chris mentioned to all of us last night, um, it's Teddy Roosevelt who helps to launch America's expansion um, as as a world power within the 20th century. Um, A participant himself in the Spanish-American War, um, Teddy Roosevelt is going to help launch the Great White Fleet, um, is going to help supervise, I'm sorry, single-handedly dig the Panama Canal, um, and, and on the domestic front, um, he is going to be very consequential as well. Teddy Roosevelt has the sense that American government um, can do and should do a whole lot more than traditionally in the past it had done. And, and so uh, as a result, um, he is willing to engage in unprecedented intervention into our domestic economy. Um, busting trusts, intervening in business labor disputes, um, signing into law the 1906 Meat Inspection Act. I mean, I'm pretty sure that like uh, George Washington, when he was president of the United States, never envisioned that it would be his responsibility um, to to inspect the food of Americans, Um, but that is a responsibility that the national government takes upon itself under Teddy Roosevelt. Um, we have uh, the passage of the Pure uh, Food and Drug Act. Um, and, and, and all of these different uh, laws, we should remember, are very uh, susceptible to what we might call regulatory capture, right? They're very susceptible to the, the, to the industries that, that people desire to regulate using their influence within our nation's capital to set the terms of the regulations under which they're going to be held accountable, so the Meat Inspection Act, for example, was was set up in a way so that uh, businesses that that made meat received this wonderful you know federal USDA seal of approval, which was very reassuring to consumers, especially after the publication of Upton Sinclair's novel "The Jungle." And yet, because they helped to help, because they helped to write the terms of the regulations under which they were going to be held responsible. They could predict when uh, federal uh, inspectors would arrive, they would have time to tidy up, you know, <laughs> let's shoo the rats away, you know, all, all, all that good stuff. Um, and, and also, you know, we, we should know that um, these regulations impose certain costs upon businesses. And if you're a large corporation, if you're a big and established business, you can absorb these costs, sometimes quite happily, because your smaller, upstart competitors can't. And these regulations can put them effectively out of business. So this is a a time when I think it's fair to be um, increasingly cynical about government. Um, Again, the, the public might call for something, that sounds as if it's going to uh, work in their benefit, but oftentimes things work in the benefit of, of individuals and corporations, um, you know, who uh, will capture these regulations and uh, and direct them in ways that the public wouldn't predict, um, and that is certainly something um, that we see continuing um, under other progressive presidencies, including you know the next sort of like big titan of of progressive America. Um, Woodrow Wilson you know, and it's worth noting that you know Teddy Roosevelt is a Republican, Woodrow Wilson is a Democrat, but they're both progressives and And to me, you know one thing that kind of interestingly unites them is they both share a skepticism for the American founding and and a real skepticism, most especially for Thomas Jefferson. Neither one of them likes Thomas Jefferson uh, because they view Jefferson as someone who wants limits upon Government. And they believe that the fundamental flaw of the American founding is that it imposed too many limits upon government. Right? We need um, to move beyond that original Constitution. We need to move into the brave new world of the 20th century. Um, And again, both Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson um, were very much men of the moment um, in that they uh, accepted that experts should be running things, that professionals should be in charge of uh, not only business, but even government. A lot of progressive reforms, um, it's worth pointing out, occurred not on the national level, but on the state level or on the local level. A number of um, communities trying to uh, do away with smoke-filled rooms, for example, or or, or boss politics and machine politics moved to uh, council manager forms of government. So there would be an elected town council, um, but it would hire a professional town or city manager, someone who had special training, special education, which equipped him to manage the affairs and responsibilities of a municipality. And this person, at least in theory, was above politics. This person was neutral. This person um, would work for the good of of the community um, and have a contract. Within which he was, you know, safe uh, to enjoy his um, employment and was immune from political pressure in theory. Um, so, you know, progressivism—it uh, it certainly has some good impulses, um, but it has some some very, uh, I think, alarming effects in domestic policy as well as in uh, foreign policy. You know, Woodrow Wilson. Um, when we think about Woodrow Wilson, when I think about like one of the, the campaigns in American history, the presidential campaigns in American history, that I could sort of imagine myself, if I went back in time, getting behind, um, it would be Woodrow Wilson's uh, presidential campaign in 1916. Uh, you know, he, he is, is running for re-election, um, and his big promise is to keep us out of war. Once again, right, Europe has been plunged Into conflict. And once again, there are are, are people who think that Americans should somehow involve themselves in this foreign war. Um, And Wilson says he's not going to do it. Uh, And he wins re election. And then, once he wins re election, what happens? He does it, right? Oop, I hit the wrong button. He does it. Ooh. That's my. uh, Mean Woodrow Wilson. Um, and, and of course, you know, of course we know that um, World War I is going to, you know, advance the growth and the health of the American state. And World War I is going to see the national government take upon itself powers that before it had never enjoyed. So, for example, we see the creation of the War Industries Board, which is going to coordinate um, with corporations. And coordinate is, 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 is like the nice word for it. It's going to tell corporations how they are going to produce in support of the war effort. And it's going to intervene with labor unions and workers to tell them how much they're going to be paid you know, while they're contributing to the war effort. We have the Espionage Act of, um, 18, of 1917 and, and the Sedition Act, of 1918. And I have to tell you, in World War I, like most wars, um, again, uh, the public discourse about the war, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, is not particularly nuanced. And, uh, and, and so, you know, if you want to uh, uh, oppose the Huns, well, you have to be all in. And if you are, are to, say, call for resisting the draft, you could find yourself in jail. Or if you like, like the producer Robert Goldstein, had the temerity to produce for public consumption a, a seditious film that puts in a negative light Great Britain, one of America's most important wartime allies, of course, you could expect to be sent to jail and sentenced, as, as Goldstein was, for 10 years. The name of his seditious, anti-American film that put our wartime allies in a bad light, The Spirit of 76. It was about the American Revolution. It was a film about the American Revolution, and he was sentenced to 10 years in jail. Don't worry, he was only, only served three, so it's okay. But I mean, this is really uh, amazing, really astounding. You know, when you consider, um, you know, the powers that the government is taking upon itself. It goes without saying that there's national conscription. Um, it goes without saying um, that 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 the government is spending um, more money than ever before. Um, it it definitely bears re-saying what Madison has said. I think now for the third time um, during this long weekend, of all the enemies of true liberty, war is the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other, the seed of every other, that being standing armies, debts, taxes, infringements upon civil liberties, right? all of these things that, that very predictably um, result from war. It's not that war is, is, is never necessary. It's not that war is always more bad um, than, it, than, it, than it could possibly be good. Um, it's that war is always a dangerous thing, though. And and that we um, we plunge ourselves into it, oftentimes at our own regret. Um, we see during the course of Wilson's uh, administration, the um, the ratification of a number of different amendments to the Constitution, um, either amended during his presidency, um, or you know the the process of amending the Constitution is begun and largely accomplished during his presidency. Um, we see in 1913 the ratification of the 16th Amendment, which makes constitutional the federal income tax. And of course, originally, the federal income tax was very low. And originally, the federal income tax only applied to a small number of people. But of course, during the course of the the First World War, it's going to grow. And rates are going to rise. And the number of people who fall within its net is going to increase. And uh, rates will not return to their pre-war averages. One of the reasons that an income tax was politically palatable was that um, a number of Americans desperately wanted to see a national um, prohibition of alcohol. And uh, as we know, um, that would be brought about by the Eighteenth Amendment, which was passed in 1919, one of the reasons we needed an income tax, if we were ever going to enjoy the dream of prohibition, is is that um, a, a, an excise t- tax on whiskey, that's back, you know, back for the 20th century, had been a significant source of federal revenue, and if alcohol were going to be prohibited, we needed a new new stream of revenue, and so we turned. Uh, I mean, it's really a terrible thing when you think about it. Um, you get an income tax, and you no longer can, uh, can have a drink. I mean, I, I just don't understand how, how the American people uh, went for that, um, but indeed they did. Uh, we have, in 1917, the passage of the 17th Amendment, which provided for the direct election of senators. And again, I mean, this is, this is proposed and couched very much uh, in, the, in the same terms that you would expect to hear from progressives. Uh, we we want to get rid of the smoke-filled rooms. We want to get rid of boss politics. Um, you know, The best way to expose corruption um, and sanitize our politics is to expose it to the light of day. Um, and what could better expose our politics to the light of day than the direct election of senators? Let the people decide who will represent them in Washington, DC. Why allow state legislatures? to continue to have this power. Now, this guy could tell us why. I mean, the the fact that state legislators elected senators meant that the Senate was essentially um, composed of ambassadors from state governments. And that if the national government were to consider a bill that would usurp the powers of state governments, certainly it would be stopped in the U.S. Senate, and if it wasn't, those senators were not going to be reelected by their their respective legislatures. I mean, this had an important balancing function, as far as the the balance of power between the state governments and the national government. But as soon as it's gone, that is gone, and uh, and I think you know fundamentally, the the the. Uh, basis of our constitutional order begins to shift. Um, And then in 1920, of course, we have the passage of the 19th Amendment, um, which which allows nationwide women's suffrage. Um, So all of this is taking place in the backdrop of the Progressive Era, in the backdrop of the the First World War. Um, The First World War, of course, uh, is an incredibly costly enterprise in terms of lives, most importantly, but also in, in terms of our treasury. And, and we can see how spending leaps forward when we enter into the, uh, the conflict in Europe. And we can see how, while after the war is, is concluded, spending goes down. It doesn't go all the way down to pre-war levels. You know, I, I choose 1927 because that's, that's the lowest point after the end of the war, and then it begins to to increase again. So um, the ratchet effect is is, is very much in action here. And and we see, um, after the First World War, uh, a number of of, uh, developments taking place. We see um, the unleashing of this generation no longer pressed into military service um, on our society. Um, and a large number of of young people get married. Increasingly, people are able to buy homes in near-end suburbs because they have access to automobiles. Um, They also have access to uh, increased credit. Um, The the government is making it possible for banks to to loan more money to more people. Um, And and we enjoy the, the roaring 20s. And yet we know that that boom is going to fairly quickly bust. And the result is the Great Depression. And uh, I, I've listened to people who are like real economic historians, unlike me, um, give really interesting lectures about the Great Depression um, and, and this kind of classic perennial question um, what caused the Great Depression? And what ended the Great Depression? And uh, it seems as if you know, some of the best economic historians can agree, can agree on a couple of different things. Um, one, Herbert Hoover was by no means no hero, in part because Hubert, Her- Herbert Hoover was, was by no means a laissez-faire um, uh, president. He, he very much intervened in the economy, but apparently in all the wrong ways. And, and after he was turned away from office and Franklin Roosevelt was elected, he began to intervene as well. And I have to say, I mean, just as I, I feel some sympathy for Abraham Lincoln, I feel sorry for Franklin Roosevelt. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being elected president in 1932, the height of the Great Depression? Do you know what, if, if it happened to me, do you know what I would want to do? I, I would, I would, I'd, yeah, I'd, yeah. And, and, and so I think one of the, the, the actions of the Roosevelt administration that we can be most positive about is the repudiation of prohibition, right? The, the states passed a new amendment um, repealing it. Um, a, a number of, of, uh, of, of businesses were very much uh, in, in, in favor of, of this, because they thought that the government would um, again turn to a tax on, a, on alcohol, and that it would you know, make possible um, the reduction of the national income tax, but, but no. No, because we, we found many new purposes for this revenue especially during the economic crisis of the 1930s. Um, The Great Depression really was, obviously, um, a a terrible and traumatic time. And and Franklin Roosevelt undertook a number of of government programs, again, I mean, assuming powers um, that that the national government had not enjoyed before, that uh, were meant to address this economic contraction. Um, People were worried about, could they put their money in a bank? Um, were banks safe? There were a number of different bank runs um, where people would, would hear that the bank was in danger of default, um, that its supply of cash was, was low, and they'd better run and get their money out while it was still there. And, and this would lead to the collapse of different banks. Um, and so one of the programs that Franklin Roosevelt institutes is, is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. You know, which guaranteed the deposits of Americans. Um, again, maybe this was uh, beneficial in the short run, but you have to ask yourself, if, if, if the government is going to guarantee the money that you place in a bank, do you, as a banking customer, have any incentive whatsoever in trying to assess how safe and secure your bank is, how solvent your bank is? And if customers don't have to care how solvent a bank is, does a bank really have to care how solvent it is? Can it just meet the minimum requirements of of the federal government? So these interventions are are no doubt well-intentioned, but they can have adverse consequences. We see the national government engaging in all sorts of different projects. Um, If you go back to the early republic, Back to the administrations of James Monroe and John Quincy Adams. Um, the question of internal improvements, like building postal roads really pretty mod- and lighthouses, pretty modest stuff, was very controversial. That's how sacrosanct they held the Constitution. And yet now, the government, um, and, and, and through multitudinous programs, from the Works Progress Administration to the Civilian Conservation Corps, um, engaged in, in projects that would uh, make parks, build roads, uh, uh, decorate post offices. I mean, there are artists employed to paint murals um, at taxpayer expense in the walls of post offices. Um, and then, of course, there's the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, which, which you know, buys up, uh, oftentimes through eminent domain, uh, land in the American South um, to make dams for the production of electricity. Um, to, to electrify the, the rural South. I mean, so this is a, a, a big intrusion of the government into the American economy um, in many ways uh, that the government had not participated in the economy um, before. And one of the, the questions that people oftentimes ask about Roosevelt and the New Deal programs um, is, you know, did the New Deal end the Great Depression? And, and I think the answer is, is pretty clear. No. Um, in fact, it seems as if the New Deal prolongs the Great Depression. If you look at earlier responses to, to depressions and recessions, um, and you look at presidents who essentially do nothing and, and let the economy bottom out and regain its footing um, and restore its equilibrium, um, those, those uh, corrections might be dramatic, but they're brief in their duration. So it seems as if the New Deal is, is, is probably um, making the sting of the Great Depression less painful for the people who are beneficiaries of these programs and these jobs that are created through these programs. Um, but it, makes, it prolongs the pain, because the economy never really gets an opportunity um, to readjust. Um, Pierre uh, DuPont um, wrote a letter to his shareholders um, early in the Roosevelt administration. And and, and his complaint about the New Deal was essentially this. I don't know what's going to happen next. And so I don't know what to do. I don't know how to plan. I don't know how to respond. When when, when the the, the national government is is moving around like a bull in the China shop that is the American economy, we don't know when we could stand, when we should crouch, where we should take shelter, um, if we should get out of the way, um, what we should do next. And, and so it seems as if the New Deal, um, while well, of course it had positive effects for the people who were its direct beneficiaries, overall um, had some, some really deleterious effects um, for the people of America. Um, when when uh, you ask people of that generation, well, what, what do you think ended the Great Depression? A lot of, a lot of them um, will tell you, well, the war did. right? The war began in Europe, and everything was wonderful, they'll say. I'm thinking about my mom. Personally, you know, and she remembers. She tells me when she was a little girl, um, she remembers riding with her mother on a bus because um, her mother got a job in a factory. This is amazing during the Depression. I mean, this is amazing, right? And and uh, and and suddenly, you know, their family, which which had uh, very little security in in her father's income, now had two incomes, and and this is a wonderful thing. Wonderful for you know us, maybe not wonderful for. Poland, let's say, um, but this is wonderful. Uh, she believes, and 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 so you know, government spending uh, and the spending of, of of you know building up uh, our military um, and supplying the militaries of nations like Great Britain uh, is 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 definitely um, you know invigorating the American economy. Um, of course, uh, we would like to remain out of this war. Many Americans. But, but we know that that is not going to happen. Um, and after December 7th, 1941, um, the United States is all in, um, not just in a war in the Pacific against the Japanese, but because the Nazis declare war upon us um, immediately after December 7th, we're in the war in Europe as well. Um, and the Second World War um, is, is a time that, in, in many respects, is a lot like the First World War. Um, we see government growing in power. Um, we see the government uh, taking uh, command and control of the economy. Um, we see the government drafting people. And I, I just want to point out, I mean, maybe we're, we're so lucky these days, especially the people in this, this room who are under the age maybe of 60. None of us have really had to think about the draft. Like none of us have really had to really think about the prospect of the draft. But, but here's how it works the government gets to make you fight for for it. You know, it gets to make you work within our armed forces. And it gets to decide how little it wants to pay you. And you have no ability to say no. Right? I mean, that's it. It it, it removes the military from the marketplace for labor. It it compels people um, to go fight for the military. And I have to tell you, in, in, in my view, I think the draft is the worst thing possible for the American soldier because not only does it open up the American soldier or sailor or marine to, to exploitation, clear exploitation, it also removes whatever degree of heroism can be attributed to the American soldier who volunteers to fight for his country against an external threat, like the Japanese or the Nazis, which I think is a really tragic thing, you know? I mean, when you volunteer to fight these, these nations, that is an act of patriotism. When you are commanded to put on a uniform and fight these nations, however brave you might be, however patriotic you might be, you're you're there because of an act of submission. And submission is what the government demands during this period of conflict. Um, again, we'll return to Alexander Hamilton. I mean, you know, when Alexander Hamilton gets to be a spokesman for small government, you you know that government is growing. <laughs> and, and I'll read this quote again. I think it's, it's awesome. It's from Federalist Number 9, if you're curious. The violent destruction of life and property incident to war. The continual effort and alarm attendant on a state of continual danger will compel nations the most attached to liberty to resort for repose and security to institutions which have a tendency to destroy their civil and political rights. To be more safe, they at length become willing to run the risk of being less free. And indeed, that is exactly what we do. During the course of the Second World War, 120,000 Japanese Americans, citizens of the United States, men, women, eight-year-old girls, are forced to leave their homes and businesses and live in internment camps because of a fear that, that they might engage in espionage, because of a fear that they might be disloyal. Now, we, we know that in the Anglo-American tradition, this is not how it's supposed to work. One of the things that, 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 that angered the, the people of Massachusetts so greatly after the passage of the Coercive Acts in 1774 in response to the Boston Tea Party, is that that was a program of group punishment. If the British had instead done their best to apprehend the people who engaged in the Boston Tea Party, who had destroyed that property, if they had brought them to trial after charging them with a crime, that would have been consistent with our traditions of law. But to punish all of the people of Massachusetts as a group for what some people had done was clearly not in keeping with our tradition of law and justice. And what's amazing about the example of Japanese internment is that there weren't hundreds of, of Japanese people on board the proverbial ship throwing tea into the water. There were basically none. There were basically no real examples of Japanese Americans engaging in espionage. These people, almost every single one of them were all innocent, and they were clearly innocent. So the war had many casualties, not just American soldiers, not just foreign soldiers, not just uh, people who, um, you know, we're unfortunate enough to live in places like Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, after the successful completion of the Manhattan Project, billion-dollar project um, to bring about um, the, the ultimate weapon, supposedly. Um, but you know, there there was a lot that was lost during the course of the Second World War, um, a lot that was lost to liberty, and you know, I think we can agree that the United States was on the, the, the we were the good guy side, right? I mean, am very glad this war was won, but, but the process by which how the war was fought is, is certainly problematic and certainly causes us to, uh, to reconsider um, you know, just the degree to which this war advanced the cause of, of human freedom and, and liberty. When we, uh, when we think about the aftermath of the Second World War, um, oftentimes we think about new government programs, like the GI Bill. Like uh, federal loans to veterans, especially if they 're white, um, because they could get a loan to buy a house in Leventown, Pennsylvania, or Leventown, Long Island, um, we see the the increase of suburbanization um, and increasingly we see sort of the bifurcation of American society between white America and black america and, and again, I mean this is largely a result of, of u s government programs um, We see uh, also, some interesting acts that are going to lead to some heroic events. First, dastardly acts um, that lead to greater heroism. Um, the Civil Rights Movement is, is a long one, right? And I don't want to pretend that it, it hadn't begun um, before the Second World War. Certainly it has. But when we start thinking about um, the big successes of the Civil Rights Movement, like Brown versus Board of Education, Um, it's probably worth turning our attention um, to the summer of 1954. Because this is really interesting. It's just interesting how history works sometimes. There's a a kid from Chicago. He's 14 years old. His name is Emmett Till. And his mom has sent him down to Money, Mississippi to visit his great uncle. And uh, he's playing with his cousins and some friends down in Money, Mississippi, and he goes into this white owned store in this, this black uh, sharecropping region called Bryant's Store. And the 24 year old uh, wife of the owner of Bryant's Store is behind the counter. And Emmett Till, uh, the, the accounts vary. He either says, hey, baby, or he, he whistles at her. And, and, th- and that is like a uh, just very serious transgression, right, of, of the rules that we're supposed to divide and separate. Um, people who were white and people who were black, especially black men from white women. And several nights later, Emmett Till, who was asleep in his great-uncle's house, um, two men banged on his great-uncle's door and demanded um, that he turn over the boy, right? And uh, they, they, they are handed Emmett Till, and they take him to a barn, and they torture him, and they beat him. Um, and, and when he refuses to apologize, they tie with barbed wire around his neck the, the wheel from a large industrial-sized cotton gin, and toss him into a river, where his body is discovered by a, a young fisherman a day or so later. Matillas is, uh, is, everyone thinks, going to be buried um, you know, in Money, Mississippi. but his mother in Chicago demands that her son's remain be sent home to her. And when she sees his disfigured, beaten, and brutalized body, she makes the decision that she is going to have an open casket funeral. And she is going to invite the press there. And photographers from from Look and Jet Magazine and African American Magazine go and photograph the deformed, disfigured body of Emmett Till. And America sees the brutality of this system of, of white supremacy in the American South. Um, the result is, I think, a significant boost in the movement for racial equality. One brought about also by, by you know, important leaders like Martin Luther King, who unsurprisingly stands in front of the Lincoln Memorial, right as he uh, gives his speech about how he has a dream. Um, throughout the end of the 20th century, we have a succession of presidential administrations um, you know, Kennedy starts the Peace Corps um, and accelerates the space program. Um, all, you know, noble and interesting enterprises, but all increases in the size and the scope of government. We have Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, plunging America headfirst into the war in Vietnam um, and signing um, legislation after legislation after legislation um, that's part of his Great Society programs. We have Richard Nixon. Um, Who uh, takes office as supposedly a Republican alternative to the craziness of the '60s? (laughs) I guess this is like the craziness of the uh, early '70s, and and uh, and he starts the EPA and helps to launch the war on drugs, and that's why Elvis was at the White House to receive a special, um, you know, uh, war on drugs badge from the Drug Enforcement Agency. You know, we have uh, wage and price controls, which together with, with uh, Arab oil embargoes is going to le- lead to gas lines at American gas stations. Um, but we begin to see some bright spots, some, some opportunities for hope. Um, in 1977, we see the founding of the Cato Institute. We see in the Carter administration um, the deregulation of, of airlines and telephone um, companies. We see the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, has a rhetorically stunning campaign where he says the problem um, is, is, is not uh, the people, the problem is government, is government that causes our problems. We need to get the government off the people's backs. And Reagan attempts to cut social spending. But of course, in the midst of the Cold War against the Soviet Union, um, he accelerates uh, military spending. The interesting statistic that I've seen is that overall spending went up 19% under Jimmy Carter. Um, It went up 19% under Ronald Reagan's successor, uh, George H.W. Bush. Under Ronald Reagan, right, who was just despised for his draconian budget cuts, it only went up 9%. So I mean, to stop the, the rate of the growth of government seems like a really difficult enterprise, especially when you don't have leaders um, step forward who are committed to doing it. And, and the long story of, uh, of, our, of our government um, is maybe summed up by the long story of our national debt, um, which uh, has, is, is now at $20 trillion. Um, and is projected to go up and up and up because of all sorts of unfunded liabilities to Social Security and Medicare. And it is a kind of sad way to end. So instead, I'm going to just tell a, a quick story um, <laughs> that, I, that I hope <laughs> will put a smile on your face. So um, about, I think, eight years ago now, uh, we were down in Philadelphia as a family. I, I went to a different conference. It was, uh, it was a history conference. And we took a little bit of time off to play some hooky. And we, we toured around. And we went to Independence Hall and Congress Hall. And we went to the Constitution Center. And we went to the Betsy Ross House. And we had dinner at the City Tavern, which is this great restaurant where the Continental Congress took their meals. Um, and you know, my daughter was just in a stroller. And my son, uh, whose name is Jefferson, by the way, um, was just three years old, um, and, and he, was, he, was in, he liked history even then, but he really liked Bob the Builder. And he had this plastic Bob the Builder toolkit. It had a hammer and a saw and a drill and all this good stuff. And we're eating dinner at City Tavern, and he started talking about how we didn't see the Liberty Bell. And he really, really, really wanted to see the Liberty Bell. So we, we paid our bill, and we kind of rushed over um, to the Liberty Bell Pavilion. And it was almost 7 o'clock. We were worried. Maybe it would be closed. It turned out we were the last people they let in. And we walked up to the Liberty Bell and there was a very nice park ranger. And uh, he started talking to us. He heard that my son's name was Jefferson and he liked that because a park ranger at you know, Independence National Historic Park. And he, uh, he um, you know, started talking to me and he found out I was a professor at West Point and we'd read some of the same books about the American Revolution. So he really kind of warmed up to us. And, and then he kind of leaned forward and he said, do you want me to, uh, to let him touch the bell? And I had two thoughts. Uh, my first thought was, is this how our federal government safeguards our national treasures? <laughs> and, and my second thought, of course, was, heck, yes. <laughs> and, and so Jefferson got to touch the Liberty Bell. And I snapped a, a photo with my phone, and I could see the park ranger wince, but I'm sure he told himself, no, he'll never show that to anyone. <laughs> so, um, and, and then as we left the Liberty Bell Pavilion... I could hear my three-year-old son muttering something under his breath. And, and I said, Jefferson, what's, what's the matter, buddy? And he looked up at me and he said, it's, it's cracked, Daddy. It's cracked. But then I could see he got a light in his eyes, and he kind of stiffened up a little bit. And he said, I'll fix it. I'll fix it with my tools. <laughs> and, and I want to thank all of you, you know, at the end of my, my final talk. Um, for being here at Cato University um, and, and accepting some of the tools that we have to offer to help you um, restore and prepare, repair and preserve liberty. I want to thank you for the support that you give to the Cato Institute, which I think is one of the most important in, institutions in the world as, as far as advancing and repairing and preserving and extending our liberty. When when I think about the things that one could do with one's life, trying to advance the cause of liberty is just about the greatest thing that I can imagine. Um, So for all that you do to make that happen, and for all that the people at Cato do to make that happen, thank you all very, very much. So I know I spoke a little bit long, but I guess we have time for a few more questions. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you so much, first of all, Professor. It's been riveting, really. Um, I was really, really excited that you actually were talking about regulatory capture theory because that's really an area that I've studied a lot on. So I'd like for you to just expand on that a little bit more. If you could talk about the Lochner era and then um, you know the non-delegation doctrine that was followed from that. <laughs> I and, think I think you should tell us about those uh, things. You, yeah. you you clearly have studied up a whole lot. Uh, yeah. Well, and then you know there's FDA court packing plan which sort of you right. know led the Supreme Court to back away from that that era so I was wondering if you could you know provide your expertise well on I that. mean just you know r- real quick in a nu- nutshell as, as you point out I mean the Supreme Court uh, initially seems to really hold the line or attempt to hold the line against the expansion of government power during the New Deal um, and, and and Roosevelt um, you know emboldened by his uh, second re-election or is it his third, um, decides that he's gonna propose that the Supreme Court be expanded from nine to 16 uh, justices. Um, and, and he does this you know, with a, a new calculus about um, how, how many judges we should have, and um, it has to do with the age of, of, of particular justices, so I think he's pressuring some to perhaps retire. Um, but it's gonna allow him to appoint seven new Supreme Court justices. And clearly, you know, this is a, a, a takeover of the Supreme Court of the United States, which has been you know, quite vocally um, striking down as unconstitutional some of his you know, most signature New Deal programs. And I, I think th- this is too glaring a usurpation um, for even you know, the, some of the most loyal members of Roosevelt's own party to ignore. So the, the court packing plan um, you know, goes down in defeat, and it really is a black mark on, on the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, I mean, you know, and I think you know, there's some really dark marks upon the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, you know, such as the internment of Japanese Americans, as well as you know, all of the the violations of economic liberty. Um, but this, again, I mean, is is an attempt to really fundamentally overturn the constitutional order um, as it had been constructed, to change the rules in the middle of the game um, for his own political advantage. And I, I think you know, people saw it right through that, and to their credit, um, stood up against it. So Thank thanks, Chris. Yes. Thanks again, Professor. Uh, the question I have is, was there any litigation against those early progressive acts, the Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act, et cetera? And if so, where, you know, did it occur, and what occurred? You know, I really wish I were uh, a guy named Randy Barnett, um, or perhaps I could be a guy named Clark Neely, who is uh, now working at, at the Cato Institute. Um, who are who are uh, law pro- lawyers and law professors who really know this stuff cold? Uh, I, I know that yeah, there are challenges, um, but you know clearly they're they're not successful ones because the government you know grows and grows apace. And I think you know when things were struck down, people would find another way, um, you know, to bring about the changes they wished. According to this, I have uh, three minutes left, so I'll, I'll try to answer okay. your questions quickly. Uh, uh, this is one. Qu- um, one of the most evil people that I think have been around that still have consequences is Harry Enslinger, who was the head of drug administration who moved from the, uh, the alcohol prohibition to say, I've got something to do, and he, and he was really the one who pushed uh, uh, cannabis to be an illegal drug. Is, this, is he a technocrat? Because I never thought of it that way, or was he purely... Because most of his arguments were racist. Uh-huh. Some of the things you, you said in regards to, you know, this is a drug that, that makes black people rape white women. I mean, was he just a technocrat or really was he just a racist that happened to be a bureaucrat? Well, you know, I, 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 I know very little about this, this man specifically. Um, I, I will suggest that it's possible to be both. And uh, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps that was the, the, the case. Um, but but I have to say this. I mean I think that the vast majority of people, um, again not everyone, but the vast majority of people are motivated by good intentions. It's just that they oftentimes can't foresee um, what their actions will bring about, um, and 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 that's and that's the scary thing. We can see how well intentioned government. Could have you know dramatically bad consequences um, when you allow it to grow and expand. Just imagine the danger that that can befall all of us if people with bad intentions get in control. Yes, sir. Thanks, Bob. I, this is a real simple one, but. Uh despite the efforts of people like you to educate and Cato and Heritage and other think tanks that are trying to preserve liberty and explain where we've been and where we're going, I just wondered, we are still losing this war, in my view. I may be the most pessimistic man in the world, but I don't see us winning many battles. I just wonder if maybe you might want to just talk for a minute or so do you see any optimism? I asked the same question to Antonin Scalia. He didn't give me a very good answer, so I hope yours is better. Well, well I've, I've never had to best Antonin Scalia. And <laughs> uh, so thanks. Thanks for setting the bar uh, impossibly high. I, I will say this. I, I will say um, that my hope is, is that you know, through the efforts of, of Cato and, and other organizations um, that, yeah, I mean, we, we will bring about change in the attitude of people toward government. Um, and that that will bring about a change in, in government. I know it's not a guarantee, but I've seen all sorts of revolutions just in my life. I'm only 47. I mean, I'm not the oldest guy in the world. But, but I mean, just think about, like, you know, gay rights, for example, and, and the degree to which that has changed. Fifteen years ago, the idea of gay marriage was this laughable, weird fantasy, and now it's the law of the land. I mean, it's incredible how change can come about, how quickly it could come about. But I'll, I'll say this one last thing. I don't look to the government to solve my problems, and I don't look to the government to make the world a better place. And we are lucky to live in a country, and we are lucky to live in a world where there is plenty of room beyond government. There is still plenty of room beyond the political. And when I think about all the amazing things that have improved our lives, um, you know, they all come from private enterprise. And, uh, And I think there's a lot of reason for optimism, um, you know, including these fantastic tricorders um, that we all have, which tell me, um, for example, that my time is now up. So thank you very much.